are starting our last sermon series in the book of Ephesians. It's only been a year, but we're excited to wrap this letter up, and we're doing so with a bang, because this is uh, one of the best passages in all of the New Testament. It's pretty incredible, um, and it's called, our sermon series here in chapter 6 is called Ready for War. Uh, accessing our spiritual resources for Christian living. All right, that's kind of intense. And uh, what Paul is saying here in the last half of chapter 6 is that the struggle is real. And it's more real than sometimes we realize. And so Paul is sort of opening, lifting up the hood on what's going on. And, uh, yeah, the truth is that the, the Christian life is hard. The struggle is real. And it's hard not just as an individual Christian, it's, it's hard as a community of faith. And uh, I want you to know what I'm not saying. We're not saying that it's hard to be a Christian in America. Because... It's much harder, as we just talked about, in places like China, in places like, like Afghanistan. No, it's not hard to be a Christian in America. It's hard to be a Christian anywhere. It's hard to stay faithful to Jesus for an entire lifetime. I mentioned a few weeks ago that every time I see a Christian older than age 50 who's still walking with Jesus, I'm like, wow. I just want to like talk to you and know what you've seen, what you've experienced. And it's hard to remain faithful to Jesus. It is. It's hard to forgive people when they hurt you. It's hard to love your neighbor as yourself. It's hard to be patient while we wait for God to make a way. It's hard to watch people you love die. And it's also hard to watch people you love walk away from Jesus. Bottom line, it's hard to be like Jesus. So Paul's words in chapter 6, starting in verse 10, I think they're going to be somewhat of an encouragement for those of us who are having a hard time clinging to Jesus, who are having a hard time remaining faithful to the Christian faith. Paul basically says, yeah, it's hard. And there's a good reason for it. There is a host, a multitude of evil spiritual beings, including the devil, making it more difficult than it would otherwise be. These are Paul's words, not mine. He says it's a fight. It's a battle. It's a war. So for the next month, all of November, we're going to be looking at Paul's advice for how to deal with this reality. How to deal with the fact that under the hood of reality, there are spiritual beings trying to keep you from staying faithful to Jesus. We're going to learn today about our spiritual strength. Next week, our spiritual armor. The following week, our spiritual communication. And finally, our spiritual family. So starting today, we'll be in verses 10 through 13 of Ephesians chapter 6. Let's go ahead and read it. Paul writes, Finally, 
Be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God, that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand firm. Let's pray. Father, as always, I pray that your word would do the heavy lifting this morning. Lord, that not only would your spirit illuminate your word to us today, but that he would break through our hard hearts to convince us of your great power and your great love for us. So that we might know what's really going on and yet realize you are so much bigger. You are so much more powerful than anything that would try to keep us from Jesus Christ. Help us to be more fully trained in that reality today. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. All right, so what is Paul doing here? He starts with the word, finally. So here it looks like he's starting a a new topic and, and a final topic. But this section of spiritual warfare that we're going through this month that concludes the letter, it is not a new concept. This isn't the last part of Ephesians having to do with spiritual warfare. No. We have encountered all of these things in the book of Ephesians already. So Paul, what Paul is doing here as he talks about the spiritual armor of God that we have for this war that is raging, he's providing a closing illustration to tie the entire letter together for us. So where did we last leave these demonic rulers and authorities in Ephesians? And how have they interacted with us so far? We're going to do a little backtracking throughout the letter of Ephesians to see where we've come from with these authorities and where we are now. So go ahead and turn a couple pages back to chapter 1. Starting in verse 21. Or actually, we're going to go back to verse 20. He says, uh, The great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. And then verse 21, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. So Jesus was raised from the dead and seated above these rulers and authorities. And then Jesus was given to the church as the head of his body. So this is great. That's awesome. So where were we when this happened? So if you look a couple verses later, starting in verse 1 of chapter 2, Paul writes, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course 
of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. So while Jesus has taken on flesh as the eternal son of God, lived the life we couldn't live, then died the death we could, that we deserved, and then was resurrected, where were we? We were spiritually dead. And not just dead here, but Paul says that we were under the power and authority of these evil spiritual beings. Okay? So then what happens? Verse 4 of chapter 2, But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Okay, so God raised us up with Jesus, seated us with Jesus. And remember, where is Jesus? Back a couple verses ago. Jesus has been raised far above all rule and authority and power and dominion. This is good news. So then what? You know, where did we leave these rulers and authorities? What's going on with them since Jesus has been raised above them? If we fast forward to chapter 3, verse 10, we get a little picture of what's coming. Uh, starting in verse 9, he's, Paul says, I was given this, this uh, calling to preach to the Gentiles and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things, verse 10. So that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. Okay, so God's plan at the end of time is to show us off to show the church off, to display before these rulers, these authorities, his power, his wisdom. Amen. Amen. And according to the letter from Paul to the uh, church in Colossae, in Colossians, at the time when, when Jesus was killed and then resurrected from the grave, uh, it says that he put these rulers and authorities to open shame. He, he humiliated them. He utterly defeated and, and just won. He won. <laughs> they, the rulers and the authorities, they were in the heavenly places. You know, we, as human beings, we were born into a cosmic war that was already going on. And we learned that all the way back in Genesis chapter 3, the snake in the garden. Who is he? You know, he was a creation of God, a, 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 a spiritual being that had goodness and truth and beauty, but he rebelled from God. And so he had authority. And he was, and these spiritual beings, devil, Satan, all of these spiritual beings were in the heavenly places and are going to be brought down and eventually brought all the way down to hell for their judgment. And so, but then what's going on with us? You know, simultaneously, we who were born on earth, who are just dust, we have been 
and are being brought up to the heavenly places with Christ in glory. So the question is for today, where does that leave us and them? And how does that play out here on earth until Jesus comes back? You know, if they have been defeated, humiliated, put to open shame at the cross, why are they still a threat? You're not wrong. This final passage in Ephesians ties the reality of this cosmic battle with the everyday life of the church. Since Jesus has defeated these rulers and authorities already, what does it look like to, for us to walk in this already accomplished victory? Spiritual warfare. You know, this reality that we don't just struggle against, or we don't struggle at all against flesh and blood, but against these spiritual beings. This is a prime example of the already not yet reality of the kingdom of God. So according to Paul, even though Jesus has already won, he's already dealt the death blow to these spiritual beings. According to Paul, there's still a problem. There's still a problem today. So the, the victory has already been won, and yet the, the final victory where, where they are cast aside completely and utterly and stripped of their final authority has not happened yet. And so for us, as Christ followers, as disciples of Jesus, these spiritual beings, Paul says, are still a problem. And they are a problem which requires two things. It requires power, and it requires preparation. So today we're going to look at each of those things. We're going to look at the problem a little more closely. We're going to look at the power, which is the solution, and we're going to look at the preparation. You know, how do we actually start to walk in that power? All right, so looking at the problem. There are demonic beings who do not want you to worship God. Like, like I said before, we, we were born into a cosmic war that was already going on. Satan and the other gods of this world had already rebelled from God before we even showed up. But, like we read, they have been defeated. But for the present, they still retain some measure of authority, some measure of influence, some measure of God allowed power. Who are they? Well, we meet our first character in that category in verse 11. You know, put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the who? Devil. And then moving on to verse 12, he says, For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against who? The rulers against the authorities against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Now, this is a pretty robust description of these spiritual beings. In those first two categories, rulers and authorities, those go together a lot. We already read a few verses in Ephesians, but they're all across the New Testament, the rulers and the authorities. 
And these second two categories, the cosmic powers or the spiritual forces of evil, these are general descriptions of these spiritual beings. And they provide a merism, which is basically, you know, if, if I were to say, you know, God is God and in authority of heaven and earth. What does heaven and earth represent? Everywhere. And so here Paul says, you know, against the rulers, the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, as in on the earth, as well as the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. So these spiritual beings, the evil spiritual beings, are entirely evil, and it includes all of them. You know, our culture is getting a little bit more into spiritualism than, you know, in the last uh, several decades. And, you know, people will often say, you know, I'm not, I'm not religious, but I'm spiritual. And there's, there's an openness to the spiritual realm that we haven't seen um, over the last few decades. And it's, Paul is basically saying, be careful. Because, yeah, sure, you can be open to that realm. But let me tell you, not everyone in that realm is for your good. So what are they doing? What, what is their plan? What, what are they about? You know, in verse 11, we find, we find the word that kind of encapsulates their entire mission. He says, put on the whole armor of God. Why? That you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. This, what does that mean? It means intelligent, intentional, and harmful plans. These beings, including the devil, they, they're, a smart, they're a smart bunch. Like, they're not stupid. They actually carefully craft plans for your life. What are their schemes? What, how do they operate? What is their battle plan? If you take one thing away today about the devil and his schemes, I want it to be this. He's a liar. Everything he does falls into that category, first and foremost. Jesus calls Satan the father of lies, who has been lying from the beginning. He finds as many ways to lie as possible, and he's creative. He lies about God, he lies about you, and he lies about life and how it's supposed to work. The big three that are the bread and butter of the devil and his people, temptation, deception, and accusation. These all fall under the category of lies. They are all forms of lies. The temptation lie. God isn't good. He has withheld something from you that you, that you need, that you deserve. The deception lie. Other things are more worthwhile than God. God didn't really say that. The accusation lie. You are dirty. You are not enough. You are unworthy. You should feel condemned. And he has other schemes. 
like physical, emotional, psychological harm. (laughs) Peter calls the devil, he prowls around like a roaring lion seeking who he might devour. So he, he'll throw anything and everything at you. And if you look at the book of Job, <laughs> it wasn't just lies and deception. It was physical pain, physical harm, and bad circumstances. <laughs> and if you look at someone like the demoniac that Jesus healed uh, in the Gospels, this guy had a legion of demons possessing him, thousands of demons in this man. And Jesus casts them out. He allows them to go into the herd of pigs that are right there, and they all drown themselves. And what does it say about this man? That he was in his right mind after being delivered by Christ. So demons do still ensnare people with oppression, psychologically, emotionally, physically. But they ensnare even more people with just letting them be distracted from Jesus deceived away from Christ or discouraged that the love of God just simply isn't for them. Okay, so lest you think that this sermon this morning is going to give you a, yeah, yeah, the devil made me do it mentality, that you can just go away saying, you know, the only thing I got to worry about is demons. (laughs) No, (laughs) because elsewhere the Bible's pretty clear that we got other problems too. We got our flesh, right? And so, the devil never makes us do anything. But he is an opportunistic enemy. You know, if you have a a wound, a trauma, a struggle, he's going to capitalize on that, right? He's going to partner with your flesh. He's going to partner with the the messages you're hearing from the world at large. He's, he's totally down for team playing with the flesh and the world. He partners with them both to derail our life with God and God's mission in the world. And we've already seen this play out in Ephesians. If you turn back to chapter 4, verse 22, it says, Put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through what? Deceitful desires. Now, that's the flesh. And Satan will partner with our flesh to derail individual believers by isolating them within their own struggles, wounds, and sins. He's totally down to do that. And he will use your flesh, your desires, to do it. He totally wants you isolated from the community of faith, just just in the trenches on your own. He'll happily have you live there. What else does he do? Back in chapter 4, verse 14, we see the word schemes again. And it says, So that we may no longer live, excuse me, so that we may no longer be children, tossed to and fro by the waves, and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness in deceitful schemes. It's the same word. And yet, it doesn't mention the devil there. But, the, but this, is, this is part of, of um, the devil capitalizing on human institutional ideology. He says, yeah, yeah, that's good stuff. Go with that. 
You know, and in partnering with that, he derails whole communities by creating ideologies that supersede the kingdom of God. And we, saw, we see this a lot right now in American Christianity, both on the right and the left. We see ideologies elevated over the kingdom of God. And Satan's like, yes, yes, keep that going. That's good stuff. Why? Because what do these schemes lead to in the life of the church? They lead to selfishness. They lead to indulgence. They lead to isolation, unforgiveness, division, broken relationships, injustice, and apathy. All of which Satan's like, score. I'll take it. Anything and everything. Paul just spent the entire chapters four and five talking about relationships within the church. So it's no wonder that capping off two chapters full of relationships and then he gets into marriage and parenting and family life and employment. All of these are the areas where the devil has a heyday. If you look back at chapter 4, verse 27, Paul just said, Be angry and do not sin. Don't let anger separate you from your beloved family of Jesus Christ. And he says in verse 27, and give no opportunity to the devil. You know, the devil sees anger, bitterness, clamor, malice, slander, wrath, as he says in verse 31, and he goes, there's my opportunity. I'm going to zero in right there. So that's how the devil feels about division in the family of God. How does the Holy Spirit feel? In verse 30 of chapter 4, it says, Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. Division strife, broken relationships, grieve the Holy Spirit. And the devil's like, yes, that's my, that's my jam. Satan and his friends are doing all they can to sabotage the church from fulfilling her mission in the world. And he'll use any means necessary. So that's the problem. You know, we've got problems. But notice what isn't the problem. Paul says in verse 12, we do not wrestle against what? Flesh and blood. Other human beings aren't the problem. They are the mission. What is the mission? To love people. To point them to Jesus. We cannot do that if we are fighting them and dehumanizing them. Whoever them is, you can't do it. So Paul says, that's not the problem. The problem is this host of spiritual beings. Okay, so this, this, this reality of the devil and demons, they don't like us following Jesus. They don't want God to redeem humanity They want to sabotage your relationship with Jesus Christ. They want to sabotage your relationships with Jesus' body. And they want you to hate yourself. It's kind of intense. 
And these are spiritual beings with power. So what's the solution? The power. The power. And Paul gives it to us right up front in verse 10. He says, finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. How? Verse 11, put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. And then after diving into the the under the hood reality of these spiritual beings, he kind of comes up again for air in verse 13 and repeats the same thing just about. He says, therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand firm. So what's the solution? How do we survive the wiles of the devil? We do it with the power of God, the strength of God, the armor of God. Whose power? Whose strength? Whose armor? Not ours. God's. And this isn't the first time Paul has mentioned the power of God in the lives of believers here in Ephesians. I want to review that too because it's so good. In in chapters 1 through 3, Paul's laying out the truths of who we are in Christ. But if you don't don't pay close attention, half of chapters 1 through 3 are prayers. And it's in these prayers that Paul prays for the power. In uh, chapter 1, he prays and he says, I pray that you, your, the eyes of your heart would be enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you. What are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? In verse 19, what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe? According to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ Jesus when he raised him from the dead and seated him in the heavenly places at his right hand. So the same power that raised Jesus from the dead, that gave life to his dead body and then gave him an eternal, immortal, physical body, Paul, or God offers the same power to us. And we find out in the, the letter of Paul to the Romans that the person, the power that actually enlivened Jesus' body while it was dead was the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the one who resurrected Jesus' body, and that's the power we have. In chapter 1, that is the seal of our inheritance. Fast forward to chapter 3, Paul gets back to praying, and in verse 16, he prays that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. Leave it to Paul to just go on and on, Exclamation point, exclamation point. And what does he pray? He prays that we would be strengthened with power for what reason? So that we could comprehend just how much God loves us. 
We need power to even comprehend the love of God. That's the spiritual warfare going on. That we need to fight to know God's love for us. And then we also find out in the book of Romans that the person who makes us aware of God's love for us is none other than the Holy Spirit. It says, through the Spirit, God's love has been poured out in our hearts. So, as Paul finishes this letter, he just puts a final cap on it. He says, be strong in the Lord and the strength of his might. So Paul didn't get this idea of armor from the Roman soldier standing outside his, his door. He actually got it from the Old Testament. And it's really fascinating because in the book of Isaiah, we find both God, the Father, as well as the Messiah, the righteous branch coming from the line of David, wearing this armor. You don't have to turn there, but I'll read you a couple passages in the book of Isaiah where he says, God is the divine warrior here. And he says, the Lord saw it and it displeased him that there was no justice. He saw that there was no man and wondered that there was no one to intercede. Then his own arm brought him salvation and his righteousness upheld him. He put on righteousness as a breastplate and a helmet of salvation on his head. He put on garments of vengeance for clothing and wrapped himself in zeal as a cloak. So that's God putting on that, this very armor. And then his Messiah, the one who would accomplish all of this great feat on God's behalf. It says, With righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. He shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth and with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist and faithfulness the belt of his loins. So here we have armor, it's good enough for God, and it's good enough for Jesus. So it's got to be good enough for us. And through Christ and through the Holy Spirit, God allows us to wear this very armor to accomplish his great tasks that he's given us to stand firm. So what are we supposed to do with this armor? You know, how are we supposed to use it? We'll take a closer look at the specific weapons uh, next week. But now let's think about it this way. How do we go about preparing to use this armor? What does our preparation look like? So we've seen the problem. We've seen the power. What about the preparation? We're instructed about the armor twice in these few verses. In verse 11, Paul says, put on the whole armor of God. And then in verse 13, he returns and he says, therefore, take up the whole armor of God. These are two different verbs, kind of encapsulating two different ways to handle this armor. Put on basically means dress yourself. In most of the other usages of that word, it means get your clothes on. It's kind of like Superman, you know, wearing his suit under his shirt, right? And so Paul says, put it on, wear it, 
Wear it all day. Wear it under your clothes. Just be ready. And then take up. That's more of, you know, grab and go. Grab it, carry it with you just in case. Kind of like, I don't know, Iron Man. How does he get his stuff? He like calls it. Um, but it's ready. It's there. It's not, he's not wearing it, but it's there and it's ready at a moment's notice. And that word put on, it's the same word as verse 24 of chapter 4 when Paul says, put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. So here Paul is basically saying the same thing again, but he's using this this new illustration, this new under-the-hood illustration that this is actually a war, that this is actually a battle. But the key here is that we are ready to use it if and when we need it. And newsflash, we need it every day. And verse 13 really encapsulates this. And he says, he says that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand firm. That word right there, having done all, is kind of a hard one. But most commentators think it's more to do with the preparation than the battle. So having done all to prepare, once you have prepared, you will be ready to stand firm and to withstand I like that because spiritual warfare, it works best when it is done prophylactically. And that's kind of a fancy word. But basically it means preventatively. It's kind of like cancer prevention versus cancer treatment. It's easier, less expensive, and less invasive to do things to prevent cancer. Like don't smoke. That's much easier than getting treated for lung cancer. That's expensive, invasive, and it just plain sucks. Prevention, much better, much more, uh, I would recommend that. (laughs) And so with spiritual warfare, ordinary, everyday spiritual warfare is much better than extraordinary spiritual warfare. You know, how do we prepare for this battle? What What measures do we take so that we are ready for this battle? And if you read on, as we will over the next few weeks, into the specific pieces of armor, we'll discover that basically, this is just Christianity 101. Truth. Righteousness. Jesus' righteousness, by the way. The gospel. Faith. Salvation. The word of God prayer. Ordinary spiritual warfare looks like normal Christianity. What does normal Christianity look like? Well, it looks like this. It looks like sitting under God's word regularly, but it it also includes all of the spiritual disciplines that we have, we get from the word. The discipline of prayer, both individual and corporate. The discipline of confession, where God says, if you walk in the light as he is in the light, you will have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus will cleanse you from all sin. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sin and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. We've got to do that. The discipline of Sabbath, of fasting, of worship, proclaiming to ourselves and one another the truth about God. 
in, in, in contrary to the lies of the enemy. The discipline of fellowship. That's what we're doing today. But more so, those who can speak the truth to you when you're believing lies about God or yourself. That's what fellowship is for. The discipline of celebration. Just praising God for what he's done. Discipline of secrecy. Man, you're getting all over the room. Um, of not doing your good deeds so that someone else can see you, but doing them just silently before your, yourself and God. There's so many, and they're all so good. But the last one I'd mention is to make it a regular practice of yours to ask God to fill you with his Holy Spirit, to lead you, to guide you, to empower you, and to remind you of how deeply you are loved. Remember, we need power to comprehend how much God loves us. We cannot possibly comprehend how much God loves us without the Holy Spirit. And what does Paul say is the goal here? He says it three times. He says that you may be, may be able to stand, that you may be able to withstand, and finally that you may be able to stand firm. Now, the word to stand here, it's, it's a little bit passive. Like, it doesn't say fight, it says stand. And so part of our goal <laughs> in the Christian life is by the time we die to be still standing. And that is victory. But at the same time, this word withstand, it's a little different. And it actually means resist. There's an active, offensive reality to that word. So this means that we're not only in a defensive stance, just trying to survive, but we're also able to take an offensive stance toward the enemy's schemes. Think of it this way. We're like soldiers who enter a city and the city still thinks it's under the current old ruler. They don't know that their ruler has been defeated and a new king is on the throne. Our job is to enter that city and proclaim the good news that its inhabitants are now able to be made citizens of a new king. And he's so much better than the old one. So we can be on the offensive, taking Jesus' already accomplished victory into new soul territory to introduce the victory of Christ to souls who are still in bondage to these rulers and authorities. Jesus said himself that the gates of hell will not prevail against the church of Jesus. It doesn't say the gates of the church will not will withstand the attacks of the enemy. He says the gates of hell won't prevail against the onslaught of the church, bringing the gospel of Jesus to those who have not yet heard it. So just a final word. You know, this passage is not just written to you as, as an individual Christian. In fact, this letter was written to a congregation much like ours a group of Christians, a community of faith, a family. And spiritual warfare is big. It's global. You know, it's, it's large scale, these schemes. But it's also small scale. Because if the enemy can get a single Christian like you to sit on the bench, 
That's one less person to worry about messing up his plans. If he can get you so discouraged that you don't think you're worthy of serving God, then he's happy. He's like, all right, did my job. If he can get you so distracted that you don't have time to experience all that God has for you, he's happy. If he can get you so disenchanted with the church that you love Jesus but hate the church, then he's happy. But God does not want you to sit on the bench. He wants you in on the action of loving people, of saving souls, of being Jesus' hands and feet to a hurting and desperate world. And he's provided the strength and the power for you to overcome. It's right here. It's available. Are you available? This is a community effort. And so for you who are struggling in your, in your own personal trench, now I'd say the moment you realize you're under an overwhelming amount of temptation, deception, accusation, condemnation, discouragement, or fill in the blank, cry out to God for strength, but also cry out to one another for prayer. You know, it's coming, brother. Amen. Don't be sorry. There's a reason that at the end of this paragraph, Paul repeats the word prayer like four times. Pray at all times. Pray with all prayer and supplication. Keep alert, making supplication for all the saints. You know, he's just like, okay, guys, put on the armor. Yeah, but then just pray. Pray with one another. Pray for one another. And it works. You know, if, if you've been under a, any amount of spiritual warfare and you've received prayer from a beloved sister or brother in Christ, you can probably testify that it works. That the power of prayer to cut through the enemy's schemes, to proclaim the truth in opposition to whatever lie he is telling, by God's grace, it works. So things are intense. The problem is big. It looks a little bit bleak, but God has provided the strength and the power to meet this moment. The problem is huge, but the power is available and the preparation is day by day. And it starts right now. What's your name? It's all right. No worries, brother. Let's, let's pray, though. Let's do it. Let's pray. Father God, we just come before you and